Welcome to the Valley of the Suns podcast, part of the Fansided Podcast Network. Here's your host, Gerald Borgay. Welcome, Valley boys and girls, to another episode of the Valley of the Suns podcast, part of the Fansided Podcast Network. I'm your host, Gerald Borgay. And uh, it's been a while since we've recorded an episode. We had to take a, a quick week-long break there um, due to some work obligations and Easter Sunday and a couple other things that were going on. But we have a lot to talk about on this episode. I apologize to anyone who's watching on the YouTube channel. Uh, we got the real comb-over look going on today. Um, we are well overdue for a haircut. But uh, if you are listening to this podcast, you don't have to worry about it. Unless, of course, you would like to check out the Valley of the Suns YouTube page. Free plug right there. Um, we just started the YouTube page. All these podcasts are going to be on there. And uh, also, we're uploading some snippets, some clips from Suns pregame, postgame, shoot-around interviews. Um, some fun stuff in there. And, and the Suns have been pretty great interviews this year. Had a lot of uh, interesting things to say. So be sure to check out that new YouTube channel when you get a chance, but we've got a lot to catch up on since our last episode, obviously it was a loaded week for the Suns. Um, so on this episode, we're going to be taking a look at those jazz and Clippers games in particular, what they might've taught us about potential playoff matchups with these teams, these two Western conference juggernauts. Um, and then we're also going to take a quick look at the MVP race because over the last week or so, um, both Devin Booker and Chris Paul's names have come up in this MVP conversation. So it's worth taking a look at whether they belong in that conversation at all. And then finally, we will close with our latest G-rated segment for The New Mutants, which is not a new movie, but it is new on HBO Max. And uh, it hit theaters in August, so I don't think a lot of people really got a chance to see it. And I... Uh, unfortunately sat through it on Sunday, but we'll get to that in a little bit. Um, so let's start with that Suns win over the Jazz. Obviously, that was a big win for the Suns, arguably their biggest win of the season. They beat the number one team in the West for the second time this year that earned the tiebreaker over Utah. It pulled them a little bit closer to the Jazz for that one seed out West. And anytime you beat the best team in basketball record-wise, that's a pretty good day. Um, they beat them in overtime at home. It was another game where the Suns had to kind of grind one out and make more plays than their opponent late, and they did exactly that. So it was a good win, good old-fashioned battle, one of the funnest games I've been able to cover in my journalism career, and I've been covering this team for six years now. So it was a, it was a nice uh, coming-of-age moment, honestly, for me and for this team. It felt like watching them play you know, as one of the two best teams in the NBA and beat the best team in the NBA. So that was a lot of fun. Um, but the biggest things that I took away from this game were number one, the Suns drop coverage uh, in defending Utah's pick and rolls with Rudy Gobert. And this is something that we saw in the first game of the season, but it was hard to tell how much of that would translate over to this next matchup. And furthermore, how much of that will translate come playoff time. Um, if these two teams were matched up at some point at this rate, it would look like that would be a Western Conference final series probably unlikely that both of these teams make the Western conference finals as good as they've been, because we've still got the Clippers in the West and the Lakers are going to get healthy soon, but, uh, and the nuggets have been really good as well. 
Um, they just dropped one today, but they had won eight in a row since they got Aaron Gordon. So they were looking pretty good as well. But anyway, the point is the Suns were resorting to this drop coverage against Utah in the pick and roll. So they were having DeAndre Ayton play back and having whoever the ball handler was that that the person that was guarding the ball handler was trying to stick and get through that screen as best as they could and just sort of hound the ball handler and not give them any space. So the point of that is that Utah is a really good three-point shooting team. So they were, I think, heading into that game, they were number one in attempts, in three-point attempts per game, and number two in three-point efficiency. So they get up a lot of threes and they make a lot of threes. And primarily one of the ways that Utah beats their opponent is by ball movement. You know, they get these, these pick and rolls going and then they get defenses on their heels and defenses have to rotate. And once the Jazz have you rotating, they're going to find the open man for three. Their offense is very good. Um, they're one of two or three teams in the NBA that has a top 10 offense and defense. So they're, they've got great ball movement. They have a lot of shooters that can make you pay for it. And so if you are having to, you know, if you're having guys have to rotate over in that pick and roll to help, then you're gonna they're gonna get you on your heels at some point. So the whole idea with the drop coverage is to let those two players, the guy guarding the ball handler and the guy guarding Rudy Gobert, which in this case was eight in most of the time, contain that pick and roll and leave the other three players within distance of those shooters that they like to stack around the perimeter. Because if you don't have to have anybody rotate or have anybody help in that pick and roll coverage, you're not going to give up as many threes. And that's kind of what we saw in the Phoenix game. The Jazz did miss quite a few threes, and some of them were open, but a lot of them were contested. Um, a lot of them were pull-up threes instead of catch-and-shoot threes, and that was something that Monty noticed after the game uh, and, and talked about to the media, was that they limited their number of catch-and-shoot threes as much as possible. And that's part of the reason why we saw the Jazz struggle from three. They went 11 for 44. So this is something we've seen in both meetings with the Jazz. We might see it again if they do meet in the playoffs. Um, but the Jazz were just kind of unable to make the Suns pay from the mid-range. And that's our next takeaway from this game is that the Suns have a decisive advantage in that category against this Jazz team. For one, the Jazz don't like to take that mid-range shot, or at least they didn't against the Suns. That might be something that Quinn Snyder adjusts in a potential playoff series because um, we saw it the following night, the Jazz played again, and um, the, the, their opponent was doing the same thing with the drop coverage. And uh, I was watching that game, and Donovan Mitchell pulled up for a couple more mid-range shots than he did against the Suns. So that might be something that teams are noticing um, as far as a, a good way to contain the Jazz's ball movement. But uh, we didn't see it in this game, at least. It might be something that Quinn Snyder is keeping in his back pocket for a playoff series, a potential adjustment there. But keep an eye on that drop coverage because it was a good way of containing the Jazz's offense. And uh, Utah only shot four for 10 on mid-range jumpers that were outside of, of the lane um, compared to the Suns, who shot 13 for 27 on those mid-range shots. And that was another area. It applied to the other end of the floor as well, that mid-range difference. Um, you know, Book and CP3 combined to shoot 10 for 20 on mid-range shots outside the paint. Um so Book and CP3 made six more shots from that area of the floor than the Jazz did in that game. And this is something that the Jazz will also maybe have to adjust in a playoff series because their defense is designed to limit three-pointers and layups. 
Um, you know, all those years of battling James Harden and the Houston Rockets must have rubbed off on them because their defense, I think, gives up the most mid-range looks in the NBA. And that's something that the Suns can capitalize on in a potential playoff series because they have two of the game's best mid-range gunners in Devin Booker and Chris Paul. Um, and that was a huge advantage that we saw in the Jazz game. Um, a lot of Jazz fans were wondering why their team kept giving up that shot. Part of it is it's a hard shot to defend because if you are used to trying to cut off the point of attack to not surrender layups, you have Rudy Gobert, who is a natural rim deterrent. It's going to be natural for Booker and CP3 to work with the area of the floor where they're most efficient, where they're most effective, and where they know they can get their shot off, even over a seven-footer who swats a lot of shots like Rudy Gobert. Um, and the other thing was, even though the Suns didn't shoot a great percentage from three-point range, you know, their points per possession on shots at the rim and from three-point range was still greater than it was from the mid-range. So the Jazz defense technically did what it needed to do as far as making the Suns take a lot of mid-range shots. It's just the Suns are really good at that shot. Um, so that's something that Utah might have to come to terms with if the Suns burn them again from that area of the floor. Um, you know, the Suns didn't shoot well from three. They shot okay from around the rim. Rudy Gobert did deter a lot of shots, but the difference was A, that mid-range proficiency, and B, the play of DeAndre Ayton and the, the job that the Suns did on the rebounding front, um, which is another big takeaway from this game. So DeAndre Ayton had a really good game on both ends of the floor. Um, you know, obviously Gobert had the better stat line by the end of the night, but Ayton was fantastic as far as his defense, as far as his rebounding was concerned. Um, the team rebounding was really great. You saw guards just crashing the boards all night and helping out. And the Suns won as many of those 50-50 balls as they possibly could. So that was really encouraging to see. Um, and Aiton, his seven offensive rebounds were huge. He had more offensive rebounds than he did defensive rebounds. And those provided the Suns with um, you know extra possessions, which in an overtime game came to be the difference. They had 18 second chance points. They had a 16 to seven edge on the offensive glass and they out-rebounded Utah 61 to 45, which is 61 rebounds in a game is huge. So that was a really good indicator of what happens when DeAndre Ayton and the Suns are truly locked in. It was a great performance. Um, again, I think their lack of playoff experience will matter in the postseason at some point but they are getting a lot of practice with games that matter right now. And that can only be an encouraging sign for them heading into a lot of these guys first post seasons. Um, and the fun thing about this game was both teams could have played better. Honestly, um, you know, the jazz went 11 for 44 from three as one of the better three point shooting teams in the NBA bridges was a virtual non-factor in this game. He had zero points and five fouls in his 20 minutes of game time. And Devin Booker missed a lot of makeable shots. You know, he went 13 for 31 from the floor and he's not going to struggle to that effect. I don't think even against a good defense like this, um, especially when him and Donovan Mitchell are guarding each other. So uh, a really encouraging game from the Suns. Obviously they kind of followed that up with a loss to the Clippers and that was kind of disappointing, but at the same time, it's not anything to get concerned about. Um, just like the Suns won the tiebreaker over the Jazz, they lost their tiebreaker against the Clippers by losing this game. Um, but they just kind of ran out of gas on the second night of a back-to-back, -back, you know. Um, they fell back to two and a half games behind the Jazz with this loss, um, and they were only two games ahead of the Clippers at the time and only three games ahead of the Nuggets in the standings. So that was a little bit concerning because all of these teams have been winning a lot of games recently. Um, 
but you know, the Suns had won, I think seven in a row heading into this game and then finally lost the Clippers shot 18 for 37 from three, which is 49% compared to the sun shooting six for 24, which is only 25%. So that was the difference right there. They just had, didn't have their legs on the second night of a back to back. And to be fair though, the Clippers are a concerning matchup for the Suns because they have so many guys that can play multiple positions. They have so many shooters and like the jazz, they both take a lot of threes and make a lot of threes. They're the most efficient three point shooting team in the NBA. They take a lot of corner threes, which is the shot that the Suns are not so great about surrendering. Um, and you know, Paul George lit up the Suns for the second time in a row uh, in two games against the Suns this season, he's averaging 36 points, five rebounds, three and a half assists, two steals, and he's shooting 63% from the field and has made 14 of his 19 three-pointers, which is just under 74%. So he has torched the Suns twice, and Kawhi Leonard went off in, I think, the third quarter, uh, third or fourth quarter, Kawhi Leonard went off. And that's kind of concerning because the Suns have theoretically the guys, the types of wings that can switch positions and match up well. Obviously, Paul George and Kawhi Leonard, there's only so much you can do when those guys get going. But the Suns will need more out of Jay Crowder, out of Mikhail Bridges, out of Torrey Craig, out of whichever wings, Cam Johnson, whichever wings are matched up with those two prolific wings, they have to do a better job of limiting them or at least making life difficult for them. Um, because they just went off against the Suns, and the Suns are a very good defensive team. The question is, can Paul George do that in the playoffs? I am not convinced. I think his playoff struggles are a little bit overblown, but at the same time, he's gone off against the Suns the last two times that they've played, and uh, that's that's concerning. The Suns are going to have to find a way to limit that, and he just, you know, when DeAndre Ayton switched onto him a couple times, Paul George hit really tough shots over him, but he didn't seem bothered at all. So that's not a knock on Aiton or anything. He defended those possessions as well as he could, but that's a problem if Paul George doesn't feel intimidated or bothered by Aiton switching on to him. The Suns have to find a way to make him more uncomfortable because unless Pandemic P appears in a potential playoff series, that's not a good matchup for the Suns, and it's one that uh, so far through the first two times that they've played each other, um, it's looked decisively in the Clippers' favor, that matchup. Um, to be fair, though, we should note that Patrick Beverly's injury could throw them off a little bit. He's out for at least the next three to four weeks with a fractured hand, and that could push closer to four to six weeks, depending on what, you know, he, he's only getting reevaluated in three to four weeks. So that could mean more time until he's back after the reevaluation period. So we'll see, but not an encouraging look, even if it was not in a nutshell, that loss itself wasn't worth being upset about on the second night of a very tough back-to-back arguably the toughest back-to-back you can have in the NBA but um, you know just something to keep in mind as we head towards these potential playoff matchups and then the Suns wrapped up the week with a win over the Wizards you know they've it was a very lackluster first half but they woke up in the third quarter they outscored the Wizards 44 to 24 in the third quarter and Booker had like 17 third quarter points Um, The game was a blowout. The most notable thing from that was honestly Devin Booker's double dimes to Mikhail Bridges in transition. Those were two beautiful bounce passes Um, and they were fun, but this game more than anything was just kind of another sign that this team is in fact elite. And it might not seem like it when they're coughing up leads to bad teams, but I really do think this team is so good that they are starting to get bored with regular matchups that don't challenge them. 
Um, and they're kind of just going through the motions. I feel like this is a team that's very much ready for the playoffs to begin, obviously because they're sitting pretty in second right now, but they're probably ready for the, you see the way that they get up for these big games, like the jazz, even like the Clippers on the second night of a back-to-back until they ran out of gas. Like, I really do think they're just waiting for these playoffs to begin for their first real challenge um, for games that are more worthy, at least in terms of regular season opponents. So we may see that flip or that switch flip every now and then like this. And we may see it take a little bit longer, especially against lackluster opponents, which can be frustrating, but the Suns have shown out against top talent in the NBA against the top teams. They have a, they have the best record in the NBA against those teams, even after the Clippers lost. So these are things to keep in mind, even though it's frustrating to see them, you know, play with their food a little bit, but uh, let's switch gears to the MVP conversation because that's something that came up um, after the jazz game. I believe they were talking to Devin Booker and asking him if it bothers him that he's not in the MVP conversation and Booker rightfully said, he's just focused on winning games and the one seed in the West. And then Chris Paul's name separately came up. I think it was Charles Barkley that said that he needs to be in the MVP conversation for the Suns. Um, so I felt like it was a good idea to go through the players that actually have an MVP case for the Suns or for the NBA in general and how they compare to the Suns. So obviously this conversation starts with Nikola Jokic. He's been the best player in the NBA this season. Um, he's averaging 26 points, almost 11 rebounds, just under nine assists. He's shooting just under 57% from the field and 42% from three, which is absurd for a seven footer. He's at just under 86% from the line. Um, you know, he ranks 12th in scoring 11th in rebounds and fourth in assists per game in the NBA. Um, and his team has a 34 and 19 record, which is fourth in the West. So he's been phenomenal this season. He really has been the only case against him is that the nuggets might not have won enough or they're not high enough in the standings. Um, because historically, if you look back at the list of MVP winners, Russell Westbrook and Moses Malone are the only two players in the last 40 years to win MVP without their team being a top three seed in their respective conference. So typically this award goes to somebody and it's usually a top two seed, honestly. Um, so it usually goes to the best player on one of the three or four best teams in the NBA. Um, and the nuggets aren't quite there. They're making a climb, but they're still three and a half games back from the Suns for that second seed in the West. Um, and I think they're like two games back of the Clippers or something like that. One and a half games back of the Clippers for the three spot. Um, so the Nuggets aren't quite in that territory. And, and historically, if you're not on a top three seed in your conference, that means that you have to have done something incredible. Like Moses Malone was just incredible. And that was 40 years ago. And Russell Westbrook averaged a triple double in the year after Kevin Durant left the Oklahoma City Thunder. So he had both narrative and the power of the first triple double average the league had seen since Oscar Robertson on his side and the thunder were like a top four, top five seed in the West that year. So that was just a major outlier. Nikola Jokic, his numbers are verging on outlier territory, but they're not quite there as good as he's been. Um, so then there's Joel Embiid, who in my opinion, until he got hurt was the actual MVP front runner because at the time the nuggets were still like sixth or seventh in the West and Embiid was putting up big numbers. He was putting up 29 points, 11 rebounds, three assists, one and a half blocks per game, shooting 52% from the field, um, just under 38% from three, just under 85% from the free throw line. 
um, and his team was number one in the East, and they still are. They have a 36 and 17 record, which is tops in the East. Um, he's leading the NBA in free throw attempts. He's third and plus minus, and he's the best team, or he's the best player on the best team in the East. Um, you know, he ranks third in scoring, 10th in rebounding. So he's had a really good season. The problem is that due to injuries, he's missed 18 games, which is even if he played every other game the rest of the way, that'd still be 25% of the season. So he's probably missed too much time. And the same goes for LeBron James, who was the other MVP kind of front runner alongside Embiid and Jokic um, until he got hurt. He was averaging 25 points, eight rebounds, eight assists, uh, shooting 51% from the floor, 37% from three. Um, and the Lakers were tops in the West before he and Anthony Davis both got hurt. Um, and that's when Anthony Davis got hurt is when things started to turn around a little bit. Um, but, you know, his numbers aren't that great anymore. I think a part, the best part of his MVP case early on was that he had the power of the narrative on his side that he was doing this in year 18 at age 36, you know, coming off a title run with a very short turnaround. It was kind of a physical marvel that we were witnessing that he was even playing at such a high level at all with such a, a brief turnaround there. Um, but his three point shooting has come down. And that was one of the big things on his case too, was he was putting up career best numbers in terms of three point attempts and three point percentage. Those numbers have plummeted off. The Lakers are no longer the one seed. They've dropped all the way to, to fifth. And then he's missed, you know, too many games. He's missed a lot of games now. Uh, and that's going to hurt his case as well. So, you know, between the Lakers plummeting down the standings, you know, LeBron's three point efficiency falling off. The fact that he's, you know, in scoring, he's only 17th in the league. He's only 32nd in rebounding and eighth in assists. So he doesn't have like that elite stat to point to, even though 25-8-8 is obviously an absurd stat line to put up for a 36-year-old. Um, and even though everyone remembers where the Lakers were in the standings before he and AD got hurt, uh, you know, he kind of missed his opportunity to really cement his MVP case when Anthony Davis went down and even more so now that he's been injured and his team is kind of falling off. Obviously that speaks to his importance, but you can't win MVP if you miss too many games, especially in a shorter season. So that will hurt his case. Um, and there's James Harden, the Brooklyn Nets. He's averaging 25 points, 11 assists, eight rebounds, just absurd numbers. Um, and he's been really efficient shooting 46%. Uh, 36% from three, 87% from the foul line. The Nets have a 36 and 17 record, which is second in the East. And he's kind of the impetus for the Nets turnaround really, because they were kind of, I don't want to say lollygagging, but they were just kind of drifting at the start of the season. And then they got James Harden and they became elite. They became the most dangerous offense in NBA history. Um, and he was, he's, was their best player when he was on the court. He made up for Kevin Durant's absence for a lengthy amount of time. Um, but the case against Harden is obviously he's missed some games now for the Nets. And the way that he forced his way out of Houston, uh, that left a bad taste in everyone's mouths. And I think voters will hold that against him. The fact that he played for two different teams this season and that even during his brief time in Houston, he wasn't great to start the season for the Rockets because he obviously wanted out. Um, and then there's also the fact that the presence of Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving kind of takes away his shine. It's easier to put up big numbers when you play with talents of that caliber. So that hurts his case. And then there's also Giannis, who we can't really forget about either, the reigning two-time MVP. Um, he's averaging just under 29 points, 11 rebounds, six assists, um, like one and a half blocks per game, shooting just under 57% from the field. 
he's only shooting 30% from three and 69% from the foul line, but he's still the best player on a top three team in the East. The Bucks are 32 and 20, which puts him at third. Um, and they're kind of on the rise again, honestly, despite some injuries that they've had. And, you know, we just can't ignore the fact that Giannis is putting up stupid numbers for a top three team in the East, you know, 29, 11, and six. That's pretty absurd. Um, the obvious case against him is voter fatigue. You know, after voting him in as the MVP the last two years, it was already going to take some pretty impressive numbers for him to climb back into that MVP conversation for the third straight year. And then you add in the fact that the Bucks are not as dominant as they were last year. The fact that voters might have a little bit of, I don't want to say buyer remorse, but you know, after voting him in as the MVP for two straight years and then watching his Bucks implode two straight times without even getting to the NBA Finals, there is a little bit of buyer's remorse there as far as voting him in as MVP and his postseason not living up to it. And that's totally unfair because you'll remember regular season, his, uh, or I'm sorry, MVP is a regular season award, but, you know, there is that, that sense of, okay, we gave you MVP twice. You didn't live up to that status that lofty status in the playoffs so it was always going to take something truly absurd for Giannis to win MVP a third straight season like a just sensational year and he's been great this season don't get me wrong but um, it doesn't compare to what he and the Bucks did last year in terms of team success in terms of him being a defensive player of the year candidate and when winning the award um, and just how much better the Bucks defense was last year. Their offense has been insane this year, and he's putting up great numbers, but probably not good enough to overshadow some of these other um, main candidates. Uh, and Damian Lillard has a case as well. Damian Lillard and Stephen Curry kind of do um, as these you know really high-scoring guards for teams that aren't where they need to be in the standings. So Dame is averaging 29 points, just under eight assists, four rebounds. Um, he's shooting like 38% on threes, even though he's taking 11 of them a game, which is absurd. He's shooting like 93% from the floor. Um, and the Blazers are 31 and 21, which is really impressive considering how many games CJ McCollum and Yusuf Nurkic have missed. They've missed like half the season. Um, and he's kept the Blazers afloat almost single-handedly. You look at their point differential and they're a minus overall heading into Sunday night's action but they're 10 games above 500. And the only way that happens is with a clutch performer like Damian Lillard, who is able to eke out wins with just signature crunch time performances the way he has been. So, you know, that's been the difference for them. And it is striking what the Blazers have been able to do thanks to him without two of their three best players on the floor. Um, but the case against the Blazers is obviously, you know, they're only six in the West. They have a terrible defense and, you know, Dame's numbers, as great as they are, they're not quite as eye-opening or eye-popping as they need to be for a team that is that low in the standings. Even with, you know, the the number of games that McCollum and Nurkic have missed, it's just not quite good enough. Same thing for Steph. He's putting up just absolutely absurd numbers, even better numbers than Lillard, honestly, more efficient numbers. But the Warriors are like 10th in the West, so there's no way that's going to happen, even if Curry is individually having a brilliant season. Um, that brings us to our two Suns candidates and our two Jazz candidates. And the reason that I say two Jazz candidates at all is because if you're going to talk about Chris Paul and Devin Booker as potential MVP candidates, you cannot do that without bringing up Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert, because I feel like 
there are some parallels between the cases of Mitchell and Booker and Chris Paul and Rudy Gobert. So we'll start with Mitchell, who's averaging 26 points a game, five assists, four and a half rebounds. Um, he's shooting just under 44% from the field and just on and 38 and a half percent from three, um, like 85% from the free throw line. And he's obviously, he has the best numbers of any player on the best team in the NBA. The Jazz are 40 and 13 um, as of Sunday which is first in the West, first in the NBA. Um, so he's arguably the best player on the NBA's best team, which should give him an MVP case. But nobody's really talking about Donovan Mitchell as an MVP candidate. Why? Because the Jazz are deep, because they're very talented, because they have another player on the same roster who could also be considered an MVP candidate. Um and then you throw in the fact that he's not the most efficient scorer. He's shooting a great percentage from three, but he's still not efficiently scoring from two-point range. He's kind of a below-average defender who is good enough to be on a good defense, but is not a good individual defender. Um, and let's be honest, the MVP case of a guy who is you know, just the best player on the best team is not always that compelling. And it's just really not for this Jazz squad or for Donovan Mitchell when his numbers are just – they're good. Don't get me wrong. They're not bad numbers at all. Um, but they're just not MVP esque. They don't scream MVP. And that kind of brings us to Devin Booker because if you look at Devin Booker, his numbers are not better than Donovan Mitchell's, at least not considerably so to the point where we can say he's an MVP candidate. Um, you know, he's averaging 26 points per game, four and a half assists, four rebounds. So slightly lesser numbers than Donovan Mitchell across the board there. Um, as far as the raw averages, Book has been more efficient from the floor. He's shooting 49%. He's been less efficient from three, shooting just under 36%. Um, slightly more efficient from the free throw line, shooting 86%. But his team record is not as good as the Jazz's. You know, the Suns are 37 and 15, which is nothing to sniff at. That's still the second best record in basketball. But, you know, if, you're no, if your raw averages are not going to be better than Mitchell's and your team record is not better than Mitchell's, you're not going to garner that MVP consideration or at least serious MVP consideration, um, which kind of hurts Book's case. There's still that perception that he's not a good defender, which for anyone who's actually been watching the Suns this year, you'll know that he's still probably below average, but he is just like Mitchell. He is good enough to be on an elite defense now, which has not been the case for most of his career. Um, so unfortunately, as much as fans like to, you know, have that Booker versus Mitchell argument, as much as I personally think that Booker is the better player, the raw numbers that you need to build an MVP case are on neither of their sides. And if Mitchell isn't an MVP candidate on a better team, then Booker isn't going to be one, even if the Suns are the biggest surprise in the West. I, I think it's surprising that the Jazz are as high as they are. They're the, kind of the unexpected contender but the Suns are the biggest surprise because nobody thought they would be this good, this fast in Chris Paul's first season here. Um, and Booker deserves a lot of credit for that because a lot of people question whether he was even a winner or not. But now that he has actual MVP or I'm sorry, NBA talent around him, we're seeing that the answer is yes, he is actually a winner. Problem is his numbers aren't quite good enough to merit legitimate MVP consideration. And that brings us to Chris Paul and Rudy Gobert. And similarly to how if Donovan Mitchell doesn't have a case, then Devin Booker probably doesn't either. If Rudy Gobert doesn't have a case, then Chris Paul's case is weakened as well. So the reason I say that is that Gobert 
you could make the case that Donovan Mitchell is Utah's best player, but Gobert is their most impactful player, especially with his two-way impact. So Gobert's averaging 14 and a half points, 13 rebounds. Um, he ranks second in the NBA in rebounds. He's averaging 2.8 blocks per game, which is second in the NBA. He's shooting 66% from the floor. Um, and again, he is the most impactful player for the NBA team with the best record in the league. Um, but his impact kind of flies under the radar. You know, a lot of the things that he does, the screen assists, the shots that he deters at the rim without blocking, those things don't show up on the stat sheet. Um, and in no way, shape, or form is 14 points and 13 rebounds and three blocks good enough for MVP consideration. It's just not. We've seen historically dominant numbers from big men. And as good as Gobert is defensively, he's not that. You know, he's not Shaq. He's not Hakeem. He's not David Robinson in terms of the raw numbers that you need to put up to be an MVP frontrunner. He's just not there. Um, so that obviously kind of hurts his case a little bit. Despite being the defensive player of the year front runner, that doesn't mean that you're an MVP candidate as well. And again, even if we were giving Gobert credit as being the best player on the best team in the NBA, that argument alone is not strong enough to stand if you don't have the numbers or the narrative to back it up. And Gobert really has neither one of those things. So Chris Paul, unlike Gobert, does have the narrative on his side. He has this whole story of how he came to Phoenix, how he turned the Suns into winners, how they're contenders because of Chris Paul, how he's rubbing off on all these youngsters as far as his expertise and his um, veteran leadership and, all, and you know, imparting this wisdom so the Suns finally know how to win. He has that narrative on his side, but again, that narrative is kind of inflated and his numbers are nowhere near heavy enough to kind of back that up. So Chris Paul is averaging 16 points, just under nine assists per game, which ranks sixth in the NBA, um, under five assists per game. He's shooting 49% from the field and 36% from three and 93% from the free throw line. So he's been really efficient. Um, again, he's arguably the most impactful player on the second best team in the NBA. And he did come here and help accelerate this culture change that we saw taking place in Phoenix last year. Um, you know, he really helped facilitate that, that culture change with Monty Williams, that Monty Williams and James Jones had put into action. The problem is MVPs don't average 16, nine and five, even if we round up here, like that, those just aren't MVP numbers. So if Gobert isn't an MVP candidate, you know, putting up ho-hum numbers on the NBA's best team, neither is Chris Paul on the NBA's second best team. It just doesn't work that way. You know, too much of his case rests on intangibles. It rests on the Suns' change in win percentage, which then drags in into play stuff from last year, which isn't relevant in this case. It's all narrative-driven. It's all intangible, off-the-court stuff, which, again, Suns fans should be grateful for, and that's not to undermine or downplay any of that. But you're not an MVP candidate if you're putting up 16-9-5. and five. I'm sorry, you're just not, unless you're on, like, a 73 win Warriors team and you're only playing 25 minutes a night, then we can talk, but the Suns aren't quite that good. Um, and as much as he has played in an instrumental role in the Suns drastic one year turnaround, he's just not an MVP guy. And, and I think that thrusting him into that role honestly takes away some credit where, you know, it's deserved for Devin Booker, for Monty, for Jay Crowder, for, the groundwork that guys like Ricky Rubio and Kelly Oubre helped lay last year, Aaron Baines, 
um, for the job that James Jones did as far as adding, you know, legitimate depth three deep to every position on this roster. Um, the Suns have the deepest bench in the NBA. You know, it, it downplays if we're talking about Chris Paul as an MVP candidate and the reason for that being that he's, you know, totally turned Phoenix around, then we're also overlooking DeAndre Ayton's growth on the defensive end. We're overlooking the incredible leap that Mikael Bridges has made this year. We're overlooking Cam Johnson's contributions off the bench. We're overlooking campaign being incredible off the bench and, you know, carrying forward that momentum from the bubble. So these are all things that kind of suddenly fly under the radar. If we're talking, if, you know, if we're trying to give Chris Paul all of the credit for this turnaround um, and that's not necessarily what an MVP case should be, but it's what you have to do. If you're really going to push Chris Paul as an actual MVP candidate, you've got to give him the lion's share of credit for this turnaround. And that kind of overlooks what has really made, this Suns team tick, what has made them so good. So as much as I love hearing both Chris Paul and Devin Booker getting MVP buzz, it's really impressive what Chris Paul is doing in this season. Like he's so late in his career and he's still doing this. And it's awesome to see Devin Booker winning and, and getting even mentioned adjacent to the MVP conversation. But if we're talking serious MVP candidates, I don't think either one of them is there. Maybe they're, they're in the four or five spot in that top five candidates conversation. Um, but right now for me, the MVP front runner is clearly Nikola Jokic. Um, you know, you could have made a case for Embiid or for LeBron James before, but I still would have pushed for Jokic over everyone except Embiid. Um, but then they just missed too much time. And I feel like even if the Nuggets finish, you know, fourth in the West, that's still good enough for what Jokic is doing to be recognized as the MVP of this league, because too many guys have missed too many games. There's too many narratives going on. Like James Harden's narrative is working against him. And I, I just think Jokic has been the best player in basketball this year. So we shouldn't overthink it. Um, it'd probably be easier if the Nuggets climbed to the three spot. So then we really wouldn't have to overthink it. But uh, to this point, Jokic has been the MVP. And that's nothing against any of the seasons that these guys are having, but the Joker has just been on a different level and there's nothing wrong with that. As long as we're getting mentions for Devin Booker and Chris Paul in the MVP conversation, I mean, Suns fans should be ecstatic with, with where their team is at just as a whole. Um, but that's going to do it for Suns talk today. We're going to take a quick break and be right back after this. All right. Welcome back. So for today's G rated segment, we are going to take a look at the movie new mutants, which just came out on HBO max uh, it was actually released in theaters in August, and I think it had the whole full, you know, DVD Blu-ray release in the winter. But I don't know anybody that really saw it, to be honest with you, because it got such negative press because they had to like shoot it and then reshoot it, and then it was postponed like seven different times. Um, so we really had no idea what to expect, other than it was probably going to be bad. And now that it's hit HBO Max, I can confirm it is in fact bad. <laughs> it, uh, it took me less than two minutes into this movie to be concerned about the direction that it was going to head in and, and how bad it was going to be. And to clarify ahead of time, it's not terrible. You know, if, if you're into X-Men or you were interested in how this kind of horror take on the, the superhero genre was going to pan out, it's worth a listen and, and maybe listening to me talk about it will pique your interest a little bit, but it's uh, it's a different type of movie, but it doesn't really do the things that it sets out to do. So to recap it, it's the main character is this girl named uh, Danny Moonstar, 
and she she's played by Blue Hunt, and she survives this this quote unquote tornado, and wakes up in a facility after watching her dad get killed in this tornado, and she's told that she's a mutant by this Dr. Reyes person, who has rescued her or whatever, and there are five other teens, four other teens in the facility. Um, there's this Scottish werewolf teenager named uh, Rain, who is played by Maisie Williams from Game of Thrones. There's Ileana Rasputin, who's played by Anya Taylor-Joy. Um, and she can, at first it makes it seem like she can teleport, but she can actually go to a different dimension where she like has this whole metal arm that comes out and like a lightsaber with it. It's kind of gnarly, but, um, and she like has this weird little puppet that she likes to talk to. But um, so then there's her and then there's uh, Roberto, who is this kind of rich, pretty boy who can basically set himself on fire, heat up his body temperature. Um, and then there is the other guy, Sam, who can fly around super fast, run super fast or whatever. Um, but they're all kind of in this facility, these teenagers, and they're being counseled as far as like not being a danger to everyone around them but there's only like six or seven actors in this entire movie um, because it's basically set entirely at this compound and basically as the movie goes along they learn that this girl Danny the main character her mutant ability which hasn't manifested itself really to this point is that she can make people around her relive their worst fears or their greatest trauma and kind of bring it to life. So as the movie goes on, you learn more about these characters and what brought them to this facility, what horrible things they've done in their past that, you know, their powers couldn't be contained or they killed people that they love. Pretty much all of them killed somebody that they love. Um, so at one point, you know, uh, Ileana's character, Anya Taylor-Joy's character, um, she has these weird, creepy monster things that she manifests that are called the smiling men because they have these, these weird masks on with smiles on their faces and they pretty much just rampage the compound and they find out that the doctor is working for some corporation that's trying to experiment on them and get them to be basically evil X-Men because um, this is set technically in the X-Men universe. They're mutants. All of these ab abilities that they have are because they're mutants. Um but as they go along, they kind of learn all these different things about each character and all these traumatic flashbacks that they have. And it's a really interesting kind of character study. Um, but the whole point of the movie was to be a different take on the superhero genre, like this horror movie. And it wasn't really scary is the problem. Like some of the things that they went through, like there were a lot of good ideas and concepts, but the execution was fairly bad and I don't mean to bring down the acting of the main girl um, Blue Hunt but she either she's not a good actress or this just wasn't a very good well-directed movie in terms of getting the best acting out of her because a lot of it was laughable um, and even some of the more established actors some of the lines that they were saying or the delivery on some of those lines was just corny or bad um, and it's just, it's one of those movies where it's entertaining enough to keep watching, but it definitely didn't live up to the promise of being this horror movie. And it also didn't live up to the promise of being a different take on the superhero genre, because honestly, the powers were just kind of like gimmicks for this larger character study that was going on. 
Um, and I think each of the characters was interesting in their own way. And like I said, there were a lot of good ideas as far as their storylines or their, um, you know, past traumas or things that happened to them. But the execution was just so poor that it was, it was very strange. Like the, the end, the big climax is basically Danny fighting this giant, like wispy monster bear thing. That's like the manifestation of her own fears, basically because when she was younger, um, she's Cheyenne. And when she was younger, her father told her this story because she was so scared of the dark about how, you know, there are two bears inside of us that are fighting. One bear is basically good. And one bear is our fears and, you know, darkness and it wants to consume everything. And at the very end, there's this really good line. It's kind of a voiceover at the very end of the movie where she says that she asked her dad, which bear wins? And he told her whichever bear that you feed more. And in the climax of the movie, she ultimately calms the bear down because she's the only one that can by confronting her fears and basically overcoming them. And that's what saves everyone because this bear was kicking all of their asses, even with their superpowers. Um, so it's a good message and a good theme, I guess, but it comes way too late into the movie and has nothing to do with kind of all of the other trauma that the other people experience. Um, you know, it, it's just, uh, it was a weird, it was a weird way to convey that theme. And they waited till like the last second to really nail that line. It was a good line, but you're just kind of sitting there wondering what ties this whole movie together. And it's hard to have perspective on what's going on because again, everything happens at this one compound. There's no outside, there's no other actors other than the teenagers, the doctor who is, basically trying to warp them and twist them to serve the corporation's needs. And then the father and a couple of flashbacks, like, and that's it. Those are the only actors. There's no references to the outside world. There's no context of where this compound is or what's going on. Um, and that's fine. There doesn't need to be, you know, a, a whole segment on how this affects the world around them, but like, there's just no context for what's going on where it's happening, why it's happening, what the after effects are going to be. Um, and as the last kind of X-Men movie that Fox was ever going to do, it's just weird that there was no, that that was, it was just kind of a one and done and that's it. And we don't know what the point of any of it was, like what the fallout's going to be for this corporation that was trying to get their powers, you know, what it means for mutants, what's going to happen to these particular mutants in general moving forward. Um, but yeah, there were interesting characters, interesting concepts, but you know, it, the climax was just kind of random and brought about out of nowhere. And then suddenly it's justified at the end with this one line, which was admittedly a good line, but the buildup to it wasn't great. Um, and again, the, the main actress was pretty bad. And honestly, um, Charlie Heaton, who plays Sam, you might know him from uh, Stranger Things, Charlie Heaton. He had like this weird western accent like because he was from a coal mining community and his big trauma was that he uh, killed his dad in a coal mining accident because he couldn't control his power basically um, but his accent was so bad <laughs> like, and it just like kicks in super strong at random points in the movie um, so it was you know it, it's interesting it's worth watching if you were already planning on watching it um, it's not bad. It's just not good. You know, it's a, it's a character piece that doesn't dive deep enough. It's a horror movie that isn't scary enough. It's a superhero movie that's neither familiar nor different enough from the established genre to kind of 
add anything to it in a discernible way. Um, so for my final score, for my G rating for this movie, I'm going to give it a 5.5 out of 10. Again, it's entertaining enough if you're looking for something. It's, it's short. It's only an hour and a half. So it's not like you're going to waste your life, um, you know, like a, a four-hour Super or Justice League or, um, you know, two hours of Godzilla versus Kong. It's nowhere near as good as either of those movies. But it's worth watching if you have an hour and a half to spare and you were already interested. But again, it's just not very scary, not very interesting, and doesn't really bring anything new to the genre. But that's going to do it for this episode of the Valley of the Suns podcast. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Please make sure to write me a five-star review if you've enjoyed this episode. Subscribe, tell all your friends. And uh, until next time, this is Gerald Bourget signing off.